0: Meanwhile, the apostles, they returned from their mission. Verse 30. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and watch this, they reported to Him all they had done and taught. We need to go back. We need to go back to that original list Jesus gave of effective mission work. You know, prescription for an effective missionary, an effective evangelist, we talked about partnering up, right, and packing light pitching rejection, preaching the word. But listen, when you're all through, at the end of the mission, number five in the list, present your success to Jesus. Take it to Jesus. Bring Him your success. I almost put powwow with the Lord, but I think present your success is better. But that's what they did. The twelve immediately returned, and they brought it all to Jesus. And they're pumped up. Man, I I healed 12 people. It was amazing. I'm anointed with oil, and this guy got better. I cast out demons. I was preaching the word. People were actually listening to me, to me. And you could see them just gathered around and just sharing amped up about their successes in this mission trip. They're on something big here. So they're on a full-on spiritual high, but they presented the success to Jesus. That is the best thing you can possibly do, especially when you have success in your ministry especially then. It's not just in our failures that we need to seek the Lord. It is in our successes or even when we think we're being successful. In fact, I would say it's more important in those moments when you see growth happening. The very first Sunday, I was just sharing this afternoon with with Melissa. The very first Sunday we met here in the barn. It was less than four months. We started October the 8th, 2003, January 11th, 2004, our first Sunday morning, we opened up the barn, swept it out, got it all ready. 60 people showed up. We had 20 over there. So we tripled on that first... Spencer was there, weren't you? That first one? Or was it the second one? He was there just growling at me. Now he's over here smiling all the time. That's that's what Jesus does. No, I, I was blown away. And I remember that day walking out of the barn and... Absolutely humbled by what God did. I'm like, cause we didn't send out flyers. We didn't tell anybody. We just said we're going to have church on that Sunday morning and somehow word got out and people, Eileen, you were here. It was amazing. I'm like really? So we take the successes to the Lord. Why? We need to keep our eyes where they belong. Hebrews chapter 12 verse one says, "Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay, inside, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us." Listen, what sin do you think the Hebrew writer' talking about there? The context of Hebrews chapter 12 is we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses cheering us on. He had just finished in Hebrews chapter 11 talking about what we call the hall of the faithful." Faithful people right and left. And then chapter 12 he says, and you're surrounded by those people and they're saying, go, go, go. And then he says, so let's throw off the sin that entangles us. Sin of
1: self.
0: The sin of pride. The sin of self. That's the sin. That is the most dangerous one. He says, throw it off and run with endurance the race. I mean, it is heady stuff to consider for a moment that there's a great cloud of witnesses cheering as I run. When I was in track in high school, I ran faster when I knew there were people in the stands shouting my name. You know, it gives you that adrenaline rush. It can give your pride a rush as well. we got to throw off that stuff. How do we throw off that stuff? Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. The apostles come back from this amazingly successful mission. And rather than being impressed by the shouts of the saints, you know, or the cheers of the, of the church keep your eyes on Jesus, present your successes to Him, and present your struggles to Him. I'm sure they did that as well. While well, I went to this one town and <laughs> they were not happy to hear your name, Lord. I'm sorry, but I ran. It's okay. Bring it all to Jesus. Lay it at His feet. Talk with Him after your ministry is done because that sin that so easily entangles is often rooted in pride. Verse 31. So they do that report to Him all they've done and taught. And He said to them... Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. It's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible right there. Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. And I have been in places where I didn't have time to eat but I was so hyped. So amped up, so thrilled by what God was doing. It didn't matter. Just keep going. Go, 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 go. woo And Jesus says, hold up. Come away. It's time for a break. Jesus always knew when it was time to rest. He's very sensitive that way. He knows when it's time. Okay, great things are happening, I know, but you're not going to be any good tomorrow unless you rest tonight. And so he says, come away. Take your rest. They went away in the boat, to a secluded place, by themselves. Now think about this, they're pumped up. He says, come away. The apostles were wired, but you know what I think? I think Jesus was tired. Well, Jesus couldn't get tired, He was God in the flesh. Exactly, in the flesh. He was Son of Man. Think about what Jesus had just dealt with in this season. While they were on mission, His ministry had not stopped. In fact, He didn't even have the apostles there as a buffer or a help for Him. It was all Him. In addition to that, over the previous few weeks, John the Baptist, his cousin, his close cousin, was beheaded. You might be amped up by great ministry success like the apostles. Or you might just be worn out or weary or or sorrowful. In both cases, Jesus says, "Come away and get some rest. Come away with me. Come to me." Matthew eleven twenty eight. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you know what? We don't have to worry about all the needs and problems and, and, and struggles being there when we get back. They will be. They're not going anywhere. The list.
1: It's still there.
0: (laughs) So you don't have to worry about it. Let it go. Come away with Jesus. Rest. And then, well, you're ready for more ministry, and that's exactly what happened. It continues on. The people saw them going, and many recognized them, and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. So much for their secluded place. At least they got a little time on the lake. You know, a little rest heading over. But the people ran ahead around the lake, and they meet them there, they pick up with him there. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd. And he said, Oh, man! Come on! (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. That's what I would have said. No, what he said, he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. Don't miss that. They were like sheep without a shepherd. So what was Jesus' response? He taught. He brought more of the Word. He began to just teach them. It's what they needed. His response to shepherdless sheep is to teach. Matthew 4, verse 4, He had already said to Satan during the the temptation, He said, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, I read ahead, so I know the very next thing to happen is He's going to feed the 5,000. Okay? Before He gives them bread to eat, Jesus gives them bread for the soul. Bread that's eternal. He feeds them of the word of God and that is a lasting support that will help them ongoing. Heavenly bread, the word of God. When it was already quite late, His disciples came to Him and said, this place is desolate and it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But He answered them, you give them something to eat. In other words, if you see a need, fill it. Don't take it to someone else. You know, Pastor Rick, there's something's got to be done about this. You know what I'll say? Cool. Um, I guess I'm, we're, you know, assigning you head of this committee. You see a need, do it. There is no reason why the church can't just spread out and do what we're called to do. You don't have to, you know, bring everything to some church leader. If you see a need, fill it. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? You've got to hear the sarcasm. 200 denarii is about 8 months' worth of wages. You want us to spend three-fourths of our annual salary this year to feed these people one meal? Are you kidding? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And you've probably heard this application, but it's a great one. Don't worry about how much you have. Just give what you have. It doesn't matter if it doesn't seem like it's enough. Just give what you've got to give. You give your part. Don't worry about filling the baskets. You just give your part. Well, when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Five loaves and two fish. These loaves, by the way, were not big loaves of bread. They were pita pockets. Okay. So apparently, the apostles ran down to the pita pit... I don't think you should have the word pit in the name of a restaurant. That's just me. But they ran down to the pita pit, found a little boy who just bought his lunch there, brought him back. Hey, look at this. We have five pita pockets and two sardines. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. Are you kidding, Lord? And they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven... He blessed the food. He broke the loaves. And He kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. Kept doing it. There's an onward pattern there in the Greek verb. He kept doing it. Okay, so it's an active verb. He's... There you go. There you guys go. There you go. Take it. Here you go. And I don't know how long it took for it to click with the apostles. How much bread did we have? Because Jesus is still passing.
1: He's, how's he doing that?
0: You know, got nothing up his sleeve. He took the five loaves and he's just breaking it. He's dividing up the two fish. They all ate. I love this verse forty-two. They all ate and they were satisfied. And when they picked up at the end, they picked up twelve full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. There were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. 5,000 men. What does that mean? It means women and children would increase it to at least 15,000, if not 20,000 people. That is one big sack lunch.
1: <laughs>
0: and Jesus fed them all. Verse 42 says they ate and they were satisfied. The Greek word kortazo means to eat one's fill. These people were stuffed to the rafters. No, no, I couldn't possibly eat anymore. And Jesus is over there just breaking the bread, <laughs> handing it out. Think about this. How many baskets full were picked up at the end? How many apostles were there? You see what just happened? Yes. They come back from their mission, their great spiritual enterprise. And Jesus has them waiting tables. Oh Lord, I was casting out demons yesterday. <laughs> I was standing on a mountain surrounded by like twenty-five people preaching the word yesterday, Lord. I, I'm picking up and taking food here? They come back reporting all the power and the success of ministry and Jesus turns them around and has them wait tables and in doing so, don't miss this, He elevated them to the highest office of the church.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The office of servant. Mm-hmm. This is what matters. This is the one to do. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Matthew twenty twenty seven. And in verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. And I'm reminded that oftentimes, sadly in the church, the upfront roles attract a lot of attention. You know, the pastor-teacher, the worship leaders, the prophets, the performers, all those who get up and do things in front of everybody, and we all say, oh my, how gifted is that?
1: You know what? No. No.
0: The gift is in the service. The gift is in meeting the needs of the body. The gift is in touching lives with compassion. See, that's what attracts Jesus' attention. That's what He's called all of us to do. In fact, keep your finger here. Go over to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Because Peter learned something, I believe, on that day. I, I can't say for sure. But it's very interesting that he comes off of ministry and now he's waiting tables. And we go to Acts chapter 6. Listen to this. At this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. That is, the Greek Jews and then the, of course, native Hebrew Jews who lived there in Jerusalem full time. Because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Uh Uh-oh bias in the early church. <laughs> so the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Ooh. Boy, you know the first time I read that I thought, that doesn't sound right. And he says, therefore brethren select from among you seven men of good reputation full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we may put in charge of this task. But Peter says, we will devote ourselves to To prayer and to the ministry of the word. We're not going to wait tables, he says. (laughs) And that sounds just a little bit, you know, haughty or arrogant. Understand what's going on here. It wasn't that Peter was unwilling to serve, it was the manner in which he and the apostles were called to serve. And their service was to minister with the word and to pray. To be with people, bringing the Word of God and praying, bringing the Word of God and praying, and they they could have they could have you know taken care of this widow ministry of the feeding of the widows. They could have taken that on and, and gone into the administration. I fight administration almost every day, <laughs> especially the larger the bridge grows, the more administrative tasks there are that are always coming across. You know, coming across, should we do this? Should we do that? How do we handle this? All these things, and you know. And I keep thinking, man, we've got to hire somebody to do this stuff. not because I don't want to. It's because God has gifted and rolled each one of us to do our part. To do what we're called to do. Stephen would be one of these seven men. Wow. Stephen, the first martyr there in the book of Acts, would be one of these called to take care of the widows and the daily serving of food. This was not a menial task. This was not a task below Peter and the Apostles. But it was a task that if they did that they couldn't do what they were called to do. And Peter begins to understand this. I wonder if he looked back and on the day of the feeding of the 5,000 realized when they got out of the boat the first thing Jesus did was not feed the people. Not bread and fish. The first thing he did was feed them the bread of the word. Peter learned the priority of Jesus was always to get the word out first whatever it took. Bring the Word. And then if we need to feed, we care, we have compassion, we do these other things, that's fine. But the Word was first and foremost on Peter's mind. He saw the priority. I I say all of that just to say, and you can go back to Mark 6. In the church, there's a thing called the social gospel. Maybe you're familiar with it. In fact, there are churches, their whole mission is to be social gospel churches. All about feeding the poor all about outreach in their communities, all about the social aspect of their churches and and equipping the saints to go out and do these things. And it's good stuff. But oftentimes in a social gospel church, the Word is compromised. That's secondary. It's not important. we got to get out and take care of the poor. Truth is not as important. we got to get out and and take care of widows and orphans. And and it's not an either-or game. We're called to do all of that stuff as we are in the Word, as we are fed by the Word of God. It has to be the priority. And I say that because the social gospel, while important, is nothing without the actual gospel. There's all kinds of work going on in the world, you know, to help people, philanthropic work, that is not going to save a single life. Because everybody who gets a bowl of soup without the gospel gets a bowl of soup on their way to hell. But if you give the gospel, which is why I love about our homeless ministry, I love that part of that whole event there is the teaching of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It has to be. It's got to be at the core of what we do because without it, we might extend someone's life a day, a two, a week, a month, but we're still just patting them on the back as they go to condemnation rather than bringing the Word, which can bring life, rather than teaching the Gospel of Jesus, which is eternal. The feeding of the 5,000 Now listen to this. The feeding of the 5,000. This is the only only pre-resurrection miracle that is mentioned in all four Gospels. I didn't realize that before. It's interesting. All four Gospels. There are a lot of miracles mentioned. And of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Or Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend to mention a lot of the same ones. John mentions many that the others don't mention. This is the only one. The feeding of the 5,000 and all four mentioned before the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened. What's the significance of that? Well, John I think tells us why he includes it, why he shares this. John chapter 6 verse 14 says therefore when the people saw the sign which he had performed they said this is truly the prophet who's come into the world. The prophet? That's the messianic prophet that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 18 verses 18 and 19. Where God said through Moses, I'm going to send a prophet. I'm going to raise up a prophet from among my own people. And the people always understood that. Israel understood that to be Messiah. This guy is going to have prophetic ability with everything else. King Messiah is going to be a prophet. And so the people see this, John tells us. They see this feeding take place and they go, the prophet's here. He's here. They recognized him as Messiah. What did Jesus do? Well, John 6.15 said, Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take Him by force to make Him king, withdrew again to the mountain by Himself alone. Notice what Mark says He did first. Verse 45, Immediately, Jesus made His disciples get into the boat and go ahead of Him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while He Himself was sending the crowd away. Why did He do that? I think I think it's because he knew his boys would be on board with the whole Messiah King thing. After their ministry, after they saw this thing exploding, he gets them in the boat. As soon as he knows what the people are thinking, he gets them in the boat and says, you guys go on out. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of the crowd. You guys go. I'll disperse. And he's protecting his apostles against going... Jesus, our King, Jesus, our King, make Messiah our King, come on, it's gonna be, I mean, they would have been, uh, he knew these guys. He knew these guys thinking, this is it, the crowds are with us, you're the one. It was an opportune time. It was a time where the enemy could have totally turned this thing on end. Jesus read it all so perfectly. He read the crowd. He read his apostles. Get in the boat, guys. I'll catch up. Disperses the crowd. And then he takes off up to the mountain himself. He knew what he needed to do. Are you saying Jesus has a problem with pride? No, not at all. But it's interesting. Jesus always knew when it was time just to get away. Be with the Father. He goes up to the mountain after bidding them farewell. He left for the mountain, verse 46, to pray. Sent his followers away, and he went to pray. And I believe he sent them away to protect them against the headiness of the multitude calling for him to be made king. And he got away to pray at the end of this long, amazing, successful day. Verse 47 goes on. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Okay, now stop right there. Are you kidding? I love that verse, because it just sounds so, it sounds quizzical, you know? It just sounds like Jesus knew how to have fun. That's not what was going on. It was far more significant than that. But it does kind of, I mean, I can just see Jesus on the sea going, what if they see me? This is going to be great. Watch this, they're going to freak out. You know, no. He's not doing that. Several things happen all at once here. The first thing that takes place is the fourth watch of the night. What does that mean? 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So any time in there, pre-dawn hours, probably still very dark. And we're told that the wind was against them. Well, that sounds paranoid. Well, if you read it in the Greek, the word against, enantios. Enantios means hostile toward. It means antagonistic. Contrary. Interesting that Mark would describe the wind as hostile. Of course, he did before, didn't he? When Jesus was in the boat with the apostles, we went through that whole study. The satanic movie, the prince of the power of the air, and now we see the apostles are back in the boat and the wind is hostile to them. Of course, in the last storm, at least Jesus was in the boat with them. And by the way, just a thought, don't read too much into this or take this too far, but I find it interesting that the demon-possessed pigs had just before this been driven into the sea. Where would the demons go? As the pigs drown in the sea, do you think the demons drown? No. I kind of don't think so. So I think they're still perhaps, perhaps, humming around. Mm-hmm. The apostles in the boat, here's our chance. Another <laughs> opportune time. Take them out. Come on, get it. And, they go. and the wind is now against them. They're straining at the oars. They're trying to survive this. They're freaking out. And watch this. Jesus comes to them, walking on the sea, intending to pass them by. Why? I think the teacher is back in the tempest. I think the rabbi is passing by the rowboat. This is another test game. From Jesus' perspective, from a satanic perspective, perhaps they were trying, you know, the demons were truly trying to kill the apostles or take them out or wipe them out, whatever. Satan's agenda never really matters. God's agenda is always fulfilled, always completed. And I think in this moment, perhaps, Jesus' agenda was another Test for the apostles, which is why he intended to pass them by. What do you mean, Rick? It's another lesson to learn. Think about what they have just experienced with Jesus. They come back off this awesome mission. They watched him feed fifteen to twenty thousand people. You got to make bread appear from nowhere. It's like bread from heaven. It's like a man of miracle here, and he just done that. Incredible stuff. Amazing, and now they're out at sea as they had been before, and he saved them the last time. He just said, "Hush, be still." I kind of wonder if one of the apostles out there was going, "Hush, be still, hush, be still." It's not working, Peter. You know, I don't know. But now he comes walking out on the sea, right to where they are, and I think I, I get this picture of a teacher watching walking through the classroom during the test. How you doing? keeping an eye on the class, seeing how they're reacting, responding to the test that is laid out before them. And I think had they passed the test, he would have kept going. Had they been in that boat praying, or had they been at that boat, hanging onto the oars, but just going, Jesus, he's got his eye on us. I don't know where he is, but boy, he's, he's capable. If that had been going on, he could have walked on by, because they would have made it safely to shore. But that's not what was going on. They were not passing the test. They were struggling. They were sweating bricks. You know, it's like the kid in the classroom who's got his name down and nothing else. And an hour's gone by. And, 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 the, and the teacher says, let me help you. Now I know Jesus could have done that from the mountain. He's up on the mountain praying. He see, We're told from the mountain He sees them straining at the oars. He knows what's going on. He could have said, Lord, let's just hush the waves right now. He could have shouted from the mountaintop, top, Hush! be still I wonder what mountain he was on Spence do you think it was Mount Arbel Probably. that would have been a prime spot to watch the whole thing happen mountain right up there on the Galilee he could have shouted down right there stopped it immediately and saved the apostles he doesn't he goes walking out there why? he's checking on them well he didn't have to do that he knew what was going on yeah but as he was checking on them he's also showing incredible compassion to them he came right to where they were he does that with me Sometimes Doesn't he do that with you? Comes right in the middle of your storm. He wasn't in the boat. You're out there by yourself. rowing and hanging on for dear life. And he just shows up. Showing the incredible compassion that Jesus always had. Verse 49 says, When they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. Now again, stop right there. These are superstitious Galilee fishermen. And we know from historical uh, artifact, we know that the fishermen in the Galilee were highly superstitious, and there was one belief on the Galilee in these days, that if you were about to die at sea, you would see a ghost coming at you. (laughs) And they see Jesus, and they freak out. Everything that he's taught them, all that they know to be true, is out the window, I see a ghost, we're dead. You know, Here comes Jesus, and they're superstitious. They see a ghost coming for him. Now, a little side note here. I, I realize it's the month of Halloween, so let's clear something up real quickly. Do we have ghostly superstitions in our lives? Don't raise your hands, because I don't want you to be embarrassed, Spence. Keep your hands down. <laughs> How many of you believe in ghosts? How many of you entertain the thought that perhaps... There are spirits of the dead walking the earth. Let me be very clear here. According to God's Word, there are only two possible places a person can go when they die. Just two. Number one, down to Hades where they await judgment. That is, if you die outside of faith in Christ... That's where your spirit goes. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, Jesus tells about this. And by the way, it's not a parable, he doesn't call it a parable. The rich man and Lazarus, that whole story, I believe he pulls right out of reality. So he says, There's Hades. Now, the paradise side of Hades is no longer in use because when Jesus died on the cross, we're told that he descended and he led captivity captive, Ephesians chapter 4 verse, the, the whole, just read the whole chapter, it's great, led captivity captive, so now Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 6 through 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's it. So those are your two options. If someone dies, they either are in Hades awaiting judgment, or they are their spirit is present if they die in Christ, present with the Lord immediately. Those are your two options. Okay, but what about ghosts and spooks and apparitions, demons? Okay, but I, and I actually someone brought this up to me. I saw a dead Uncle Fred. My uncle died. And I saw him in the house. I just know it was him. I felt his presence. I know it was him. He must have just been tarrying, hanging out a little while longer. And I repeat, demons. Right. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 11.14, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. If he can disguise himself as an angel of light, don't you think demons can disguise themselves to look like dead Uncle Fred?
1: Sure.
0: <laughs> I'm just telling you what the Bible teaches on this. Two options with Jesus in Hades. Nothing in between. Your spirit doesn't wander the earth, caught up in limbo. That's that's old Catholic theology, and it's not biblically accurate. So spooks, apparitions, yeah, be afraid. Those are demons. Trying to prey on the fears and on the superstitions of human beings and trying to continue to keep a wedge between a person and true faith in Jesus Amen. and true trust in the Word of God. So there's your little Halloween devotional for you for this month. That's the only thing I'm going to say about it. Back in verse 50, continuing on. They saw Him, thought He was a ghost. They were terrified. Immediately He spoke with them and said, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. You know what He said? This is so cool. Take courage. I am. Do not be afraid. The word, the phrase in the Greek is Ego Emi. I am. The great I am. God said to Moses, Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. He said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The Tetragrammaton in the Hebrew. Y-H-W-H. Yahweh, Jehovah. We don't even know exactly how to pronounce it. But that name of God Translated into the Greek the same phrase the I am is the ego a me and that is what Jesus says he says don't be take courage I am don't be afraid in John chapter 8 verse 56 Jesus wins the argument against the Pharisees by saying this sentence truly truly I say to you before Abraham was born ego a me I am I am I am that I am You know, if Jesus were a lesser being, you know, a a rung down in the Trinity, a little lesser than God, not quite God, maybe created like the archangel Michael as Jehovah's Witnesses teach, or or perhaps, you know, a mini God, brother of Satan as Mormonism teaches. Perhaps if he just wasn't quite God, then if we're on the sea and he's up on the mountain, we could have something to be worried about because he'd have to take time to dispatch a message to the Father and get the response and perhaps get some angels down and then go to work to stop this whole thing. He's not a lesser being. Take courage. I am. Hey, go me! He cries out to the apostles. I am! I guess we'd have more of a right to fear if he was just one of the many created beings. He's not. I am because He has always been and He will always be. He is God. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I love that. Take courage. I am. Do not be afraid. Now watch this. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind stopped and they were utterly astonished. Hadn't they just seen this movie? (laughs) For they had not gained any insight, note this, from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Unbelievable. But understand this. Why does Mark say this? They hadn't gained any insight. Mark's the only one who gives us this caveat at the end of this. They freak out. They're astonished because, Mark said, they did not get the bread. They didn't understand the loaves. What does he mean? You know, in our own lives, we miss His present power when we forget about His former works. Hmm. I I completely miss what He's doing right now in my life when I forget what He's already done for me. That day, they watched an amazing, talk about an astonishing miracle. They saw power unparalleled. And that night on the sea, they're freaking out, scared to death. And when He finally comes and gets in, they're still astonished. In fact, Mark says their hearts were hard. The loaves have a great power. But somehow they missed it, or at least they <laughs> failed to apply what they had learned on this particular test. We fail to apply what we've learned if we don't remember what we've learned. That's why Peter said in 1 Peter, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. And he does. Repeating things in his letter that had already been taught in Scripture. God does that throughout the Bible. Repeating story after story. We've heard that story before. I want you to hear it again. We've seen this passage before. I want you to see it again. And he continues to stir us up and to bring to mind, and note this in your own life, to bring to mind what has God already done in your life? What storms, we're talking about this today, what storms has he already brought you through? Don't forget that. If I remember what he did nine years ago, then when I'm faced with a storm right now, good. Mm-hmm. I, am, he's right. I am. is still with me. And I am as powerful today as he was eight years ago, seven years ago, yesterday. Okay. Don't forget what he's done and you won't miss what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Now listen, there's, I, I know we've been here long tonight. There is an immediate application here that you got to see because it has a dispensational implication what do you mean watch this back in verse 45 Jesus sends the apostles the disciples across the sea without him just like the church in the present age we have been sent to the sea of humanity as it were without him we're not really without him but we're without him in person you know we know he's present in spirit but we don't see Him in the flesh. you know. As one child said years and years ago, I love this example, I just need someone with skin on. you know."
1: <laughs> so we don't see
0: Jesus in the flesh right now. Though He is present with us. And He said in John 16, 7, I tell you the truth is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And, and note this, He sends them on out to sea. He goes up on the mountain to pray. He is interceding for them. He sees them straining at the oars. He knows the wind is against them, but He's up there interceding for them in verse 46. He's praying on the mountain. Guess what Jesus is doing right now while we're straining at the oars on the Sea of Humanity? He's praying. Same thing. He's on Mount Zion. The heavenly Mount Zion. And He is praying for His people. He is interceding for the saints. Romans 8.34 At the right hand of God, He's interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25 He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. He's up there 24-7. Jesus is praying for you and for me. Just like in the story before us. In verse 48, the wind is hostile against the apostles. It's contrary to them. It's gunning for them. Ever felt that way? (laughs) Ever felt like the world was truly against you? Remember what Jesus said. Take courage, I am. Do not be afraid. John 16.33, He said, In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. I am. Verse 49, He comes to the apostles unexpectedly in the fourth watch of the night. Like a thief in the night, you might say. He shows up. They're not looking for Him. They're surprised when they see him. He said, "Be ready! The Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think." Matthew twenty four forty four. Just when all hope seems lost, he shows up. Now he's checking on us all the time, but the day is coming when Jesus is going to get into the boat and steer us to shore. But how does this all end? In Matthew's account. It's slightly different. Matthew 14.33, the apostles were told, fall down and worship Him. That's not what Mark said. Mark says in verse 52, their heart was hardened. They're astonished because their heart was hardened. Is that a contradiction between Mark and Matthew? No. It's a contrast. Both are going on. You had some apostles who are falling down in worship, they got it. You had other apostles whose hearts are hard against what had happened. They didn't get it. And it reminds me of the church that there are people who get it. There are Christians who fall down in worship who just say, praise the Lord. He's got me. He's got us. He is achieving His will. He's all over this. And there are Christians who say, "Eh, I don't know. I'm not sure. Which one are you going to be when he comes? The apostles in Mark's account had hard hearts just like the Nazarenes did when Jesus tried to go to his hometown and could do miracles there. Miracles will never happen in a church of hard hearts. But miracles will flourish in a church where worship is primary. Which one are you going to be when He comes? Well, I'd like to be one with a soft heart, worshiping Jesus. Okay, how do I do that? Two quick things. Stay hungry and stay humble. Stay hungry. Their hearts were hard because they didn't get the loaves. As I said before, when we miss His present power, it's because we forget His former work. But we remember these things by staying in the bread. Hungering for the bread. We continue to be reminded of what Jesus does. How awesome He is. Stay in the bread. Stay hungry. Don't forget the power of the broken bread. There's another picture for you. Jesus breaks the bread and passes it out. What did He do right after His resurrection? He broke the bread. And the two men on the road to Emmaus, they recognized it was Jesus. And what did He tell them on that Thursday night? As often as you do this, remember me. That's why we take it every Sunday at a minimum. To remember Him. To stay hungry for the Word. Hungry for the Word of God written. Hungry for the Word of God who is Jesus, the broken bread that feeds a hungry soul. And stay humble. Stay humble. This is interesting. Something that's not in the passage at all. Did you notice there's something missing out of the story of Jesus walking on the water? In Mark's account. What's missing? Peter! Peter! Where's Peter? In Matthew's account, Peter gets out of the boat and walks out to him, sinks, Jesus grabs him. But wonderfully, we can honestly say Peter's the only man other than Jesus who ever walked on water. Jonah didn't. Okay, He was thrown up out of you know, the water. But he didn't walk on the water. Jesus walked on water. Okay, I am. Of course he did. Peter walked on water. The trip back to the boat... That's what I'd like to see on video. You know, Jesus' arm around Peter's shoulder, and Peter completely oblivious now to the waves, is walking on the water with Jesus back to the boat. Not here. Not in this account. Well, why not? If this is based, as I believe it is, on the preaching of Peter, then Peter would not have included it in his sermon. Why not? It didn't matter. My walk—that was that was no—that was a side issue. The issue was Jesus. Mm-hmm. The issue was he came to us in our need. We saw him on the water. We were all frightened. Peter, it makes you wonder, did he ever preach that he walked on water? Probably not. Because of humility.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: There's a side of Peter we don't always see. A humble Peter who will not mention this miraculous thing that he was engaged in. Gang, the day is coming when Jesus is going to pull his church out of the sea. He's going to grab us and take us up. Until that time comes, know that He's got His eyes on us, even in the storms. This is a dispensational picture. It looks so much like where we are right now. And you might feel like, well, I'm straining at the oars. It's, okay, okay, keep rowing. Keep rowing. Just keep rowing. Just keep rowing. <laughs> he's coming. He's got His eye on us. He's checking in with us. We are not going under. And by the way, the last few verses in chapter 6 sound a lot to me like a picture of the millennial kingdom when they had crossed over and they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. They got out of the boat and immediately the people recognized him. They ran about that whole country. They began to carry here and there on the palace those who were sick to the place they heard he was. And wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak and as many as touched it were being cured. What an amazing story. That's the homecoming that I'm looking forward to right there. And it is ahead of us. And we'll talk more about that on Sunday. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your Word. I pray, Lord, as we walk out tonight, though, that we will not be stuffed, that we will not be filled up, satisfied like the people who ate of the bread and the feeding of the 5,000. Lord, I pray we will walk out of here hungrier than when we came in. I pray, Lord, we will walk out of here humbled by Your greatness humbled by Your authority, in awe of Your power, and recognizing, Lord Jesus, that every success that we ever have in ministry is because of You. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And that every struggle or failure, Lord, we can bring it to You. And You pick us up and You help us row. Thank You, Lord Jesus. Thank You so much for Your Word. it to our hearts, Father, I pray.